We are in First Chronicles. Last week, we covered nine chapters. We're going to slow down a little bit this week. <laughs> so we are in chapter 10, First Chronicles. Mentioned last time, as we look and study through this, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of the same stories that are told in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings that are covered in First and Second Chronicles. But remember, as we go through this, we're looking at it from a different a different angle, if you would. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, we kind of follow along leading up to the, the exile of the tribes of Judah into Babylon. Here we are, the chronicler is writing from the other side of that, looking back. And we looked at, in those first nine chapters last week, we kind of did a flyover because it really covers the genealogies, dating all the way back, going all the way back to Adam. You know, it, it's, it's interesting when we, when we look at the Bible, there is no prehistoric time in the Bible. The first thing God created in the beginning, God created, that in the beginning, God created time. There is no prehistory. There is, the, it begins there. And we f follow it all the way through, and, and, and the Lord records this for us, and we tr trace the lineages again very quickly. We did that through the first nine chapters, and we're going to look at here, at beginning in chapter 10, as a matter of fact, it's covered in just 14 verses, uh, the reign real quickly of King Saul. That's recorded for us when we look back in, in 1 Samuel. He, that takes up most of the book of 1 Samuel. 22, 23 chapters, it covers his reign. We're going to look at it in just a few verses here. And again, as I mentioned last week, the chronicler is really focusing on the reign of King David and then his descendants from there. So we start chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closely pursued Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle became heavy against Saul, and the archers overtook him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he likewise fell on his sword and died. Thus Saul died with his three sons, and all those of his house died together, when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers around the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the idols and to the people, they put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the house of Dagon. Verse 11, when all Jabesh-Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak of Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because the word of the Lord which he did not keep, 
and also because he asked counsel of a medium, taking inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he, God, killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. So here we see the, it really, the chronicler just takes a look at the last day of, of Saul's reign of his life. And as, we've, as we study through it, and I, I encourage you to, if you weren't part of our study before, or it's been a long time since you have, read through 1 Samuel. You'll see the fact that the only reason Saul was installed as a king is because the people of Israel rebelled against God as their king. That God, that was the whole plan all along, was that they would turn, they would follow God, that God would rule them, that they would not have an earthly king. But they said, we want to be like everybody else. We want to be like the rest of the world. They have, they have kings. We want to be like them. So give us a king. God first gives them Saul as a king because he shows that this is the one that, that the world would choose, the world would look at. You see, Saul had everything going for him that you would look for in a king in, in man. He was, it tells us, head and shoulders above everyone else, tall, handsome. He had even great spiritual surroundings, Samuel was his spiritual mentor, if you would, one that came alongside him in this throughout his reign. But as we see, it tells us that it wasn't the Philistines who had control over what happened to Saul. God had control of that. The Philistines, again, think that they do. The enemies always think that they're the ones in control, that they have all of this. As a matter of fact, I find it interesting, the Philistines, after they, they find Saul's body, they cut his head off and they send his armor and his head and they put it in the temple of their god Dagon. Put Saul's head up on the wall, kind of a trophy, in the temple of Dagon. And again, touting almost like their god, their god Dagon had delivered them. Forgetting what we, what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 5. You see, when there was a victory the Philistines had and they captured the Ark of the Covenant, they thought again, our God beat their God. Our God's bigger than their God. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant and they put it into the temple of Dagon. Dagon being their, their God. They have this big statue of Dagon in there. They put the Ark in front of it like, here's your trophy. And they go to bed. They come back the next day. Guess what? The statue of Dagon has fallen down and before the Ark. And they said, well, Dagon. And so they stood the statue back up. Next day, falls down, hands, head, everything busted off. And then they realized something's going on. Tumors break out. I mean, all this sort of stuff. So they send the ark back. They forget all of that. They're, they're like, well, we got victory again. Here we go. But we see here very clearly that it's God who was dealing with Saul. Because Saul, though he had, God gave him everything that he needed to succeed. Saul failed. Saul turned away from the true and living God. God revealed himself in powerful ways through Saul. As a matter of fact, the, the, those that come in verse 11, it says, when all Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done, they went and actually took Saul and his sons. That not only did they cut the head, the head off of Saul, but they took his body and fastened it to the wall at Beit Shan which is actually a site we go to when we are in, in our tour of Israel where this, where this took place. But they, these, these men from Jabesh Gilead heard of that and they went and took the bodies down off of the wall and gave them a, a proper burial. Well, it's because 
one of the first acts that Saul did as a king, and again, that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 11, that he hears that, that there's this king, Nahash the Ammonite, who came against the people of Jabesh-Gilead, and he said they were about to take him over, and the people, they said, well, let's make a deal. We'll serve you. And he goes, well, the only way you can serve me is if I get to gouge out your right eye. And they said, well, let us think about that. Give us seven days. <laughs> Word gets to Saul that this is what's going on. Saul gets an army together of 330,000 men, and it says, filled with the Spirit of God, he goes and wipes out the Ammonites. Well, Jabez Gilead never forgot about that. But again, here we see all of these things that Saul had at the beginning, but he turned away from the Lord. He turned away from the word of the Lord. He, he was given the word of the Lord. Again, Samuel speaking to him, a prophet that God was using to speak to him, and he ignored that. He turned from the word of God that was brought to him, would not listen, and as a matter of fact, even went to a medium to get like going to get your palm read, going to get tarot cards, went to summon a dead spirit of Samuel to, to get a word. And it says, because of that, and did not inquire of the Lord, the Lord killed him. The Lord brought an end to his life and to his reign and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. It's interesting when we look at David He's one that you wouldn't, you wouldn't put there. Saul, everybody looks at and says, ah, he's the guy. David, very much different. As a matter of fact, when Samuel goes, the Lord tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse, and anoint one of his sons to be the next king to follow after Saul. Matter of fact, he sees David's older brother, the oldest brother, and he goes, that's got to be him. And God says, nope. See, you're still looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. Goes through all of the sons, every one of them, and there's still, nope, 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 nope. Finally gets the last one. He goes, well, there's got to be more. And Jesse said, well, there's David. But he's out watching the sheep. I mean, you can't possibly want David. I mean, he's like, he's the runt of the litter. But he's the one. He's the one that God chose because he had a heart after God's. We see, it says that God turned the kingdom to David. Chapter 11, then all Israel gathered to David at Hebron. And they said, behold, we are bone, your bone and your flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. Now it's interesting even in this piece, because this is all the kind of the lead up we get. Notice what's missing from all of this. I mean, when you think of David, I mean, what's one of the first things you think of as David? Goliath, right? I mean, where's the story of David and Goliath? Not here. Where's the story, the story of his anointing? That's, that's not here, but it, it tells us leading up to here that they anointed him according to the word of Samuel, which was 20 years prior to this. 20 years prior is when Samuel anointed David. 
And again, here we see the heart of David, and we studied through this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's important to touch on this because David was a man after God's own heart, and in that, he waited on the Lord continually. He waited on the Lord's timing. We saw when we studied the life of David up and through here, this point where we are now back in in 1 Samuel, he had several opportunities to kill Saul. As a matter of fact, was prompted to do so by some of the men following him, but he said, I can't do that. I can't lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. The Lord will deal with him. That's not my job to do that. That's the Lord's job. And there's so many lessons that we can learn in this, but he waited patiently on the Lord. And here we see, as again, God faithful, following through in what he had done. The Lord delivered. The Lord turned the kingdom over. David didn't go grab it. God took that and ushered him in. Now is the king. Now he spends seven years and six months as the king of Israel in Hebron. But then in verse four, we see that David feels compelled, led by the Lord, no doubt, to go make Jerusalem the capital of Israel. So verse four, then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. I, I think this is, this is verse five. It, this is how God sees what happened. David shows up at Jebus, soon to be Jerusalem. This is where David shows up there. They say, you can't enter here. We get a little bit more information in 2 Samuel chapter 5, where they said, even our blind and lame could keep you out of here. I mean, they're just taunting him. But this is a fortified city. It's, on, you know, it's, it's a raised area. I mean, it's definitely not something that was, is just a snap. No doubt a lot of planning thought. We see, you know, that they go up through this shaft, Warren's shaft to get in. All of this stuff, all of the planning, all of the prayer, everything that went around it. But this is how God sees it. They said, no way. David captured it. Because <laughs> they weren't fighting against David. They weren't fighting against the Israelites. This was God's plan all along. The enemy doesn't have a chance. Doesn't matter how arrogant they might be or how they might pre present themselves or whatever. The enemy talks a big game. But God is greater. And I just, I just love that. You shall not enter here, nevertheless, David captured. <laughs> I just, I love that. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? He fights our battles. He's the one who goes before us. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have somebody fight my battles, I want somebody who's undefeated. <laughs> Now, verse 6, David said, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, so he became chief, and that's, he was the one who found the way into the city. And then David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. Now, the city of David where, where David actually reigned from has actually been discovered now and being excavated. Again, a great site to go through. It, the Temple Mount, everybody thinks that that was the center. It wasn't. We, as a matter of fact, the temple wasn't built till after David died on an area up there that he purchased. Again, we studied that when we were going through First and Second Samuel. But down below, to the south, just south of the Temple Mount area is the city of David. That's where he ruled from. 
That's where his home was and his, his palace and everything. And like I said, that area has, is being excavated now. We get to go through that again when we go to Israel. Uh, he built the city all around from the Milo even to the surrounding area. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. David became greater and greater. And notice this, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Again, the undefeated one is with him. He's going to go greater and greater. Again, God's anointed. Well, now, this is, this is one of my favorite sections, and I, I think I mentioned that when we went through it before because it's chronicled for us in, in uh, 2 Samuel. But the David's mighty men, this kind of hall of fame, if you would, of these great men that were surrounding David as he, as he ruled and reigned even beforehand, and we'll look at this a little bit. And I think this is so important. There's some really cool lessons, I think, that we can learn because... I, I don't know about you, but anybody want to be God's mighty man or woman? Okay, for the rest of you, just follow along. Um, maybe it'll come into play some of the six, the six of us who do pay attention. No, just kidding. Now, these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, and make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. These constitute the list of the mighty men whom David had. First listed here in verse 11, Joshabim, the son of a Hakamite, the chief of the 30, he lifted up his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. 300 to 1. And he's not, I mean, I, I get a 300 to 1. I want Rambo, right? Where I got two machine guns and I got ammo, you know, all, everything with a spear. 300 to 1, those aren't, those aren't really good odds, except if the Lord is with you. Can we say that? God plus me equals victory. It doesn't matter how many's over there. But I love this because these are impossible odds from the world's perspective. Again, 300 to 1. And he's willing to take a stand even if he's alone. We're not told if there were others that were fighting against 300 as well, but we almost have to assume based on this, the way it's laid out here, he's all alone against 300. He doesn't retreat. He takes a stand and he fights, even if he's all alone in this, relying on, no doubt, supernatural power. I don't care how good you are with a spear. In your own power, you're not going to win 300 to 1. Supernatural things are taking place. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, again, and when we look at this, this is, this is our battle. And again, whether we're outnumbered 300 to 1, 3,000 to 1, if we have to fight this ourselves. Verse 14 in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as angels, or as, I'm sorry, appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Guys, we're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul wrote that to Philippi then. I wish I could say it's different today, but it's not. We're in the midst of that, surrounded, outnumbered at times. But we need to take a stand Take a stand. This spear, take a stand for, for the light that we have in us. Well, 
Joshua Beam, he's not alone in this. Verse 12, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo or Dudu, either way. You're starting off with a strike against you. Your dad's named Dodo or Dudu. I don't know if that's worse than a boy named Sue or not, but any, any way how you stack up with that, you, you got one strike against you. But anyway, the Ahohite, who was one of the three mighty men, he was with David at, Past, at Pastamim when the Philistines were gathered together there to do battle. And there was a plot of ground full of barley, and the people fled before the Philistines. They took their stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Now this, this story is awesome and just rich with meaning for us. Again, you want to be a mighty man or woman for God? Eleazar. Everyone else, we do know there were other people now, but they all ran, except Eleazar, and notice who was with him, David, his king. He's there with his king. They took their stand, verse 14. And it's interesting because, you know, again, full of meaning that we can draw out for us, and I don't think I'm going too far out of bounds with this, but it says that the plot of ground full of barley, they're defending a barley field. Barley was the cheapest of all of the grains that was available. It was available everywhere. Barley will grow anywhere with that. I mean, it was, but they defended it because that's not the enemy's territory. As a matter of fact, and this is, this is awesome, he was with David at Pastamim. That literally means boundary of blood. And guys, when we look at that, as believers, as Christians, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, guys, we have a boundary of blood around us. We have been purchased by the very blood of Jesus. And let me just give us this picture so that we can look at this, and it's all for us individually. Inside that boundary of blood, the enemy, we can't give up one inch. One, one little area, whether it's, whether it's barley or whether it's the, the richest grain. Not one inch. We can't let the enemy have, have anything because it's been purchased. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. There's no, there's no small things. There's no little sins. Guys, we need to fight for every, every square inch. And as I look at this, and again, there's so much in this. I mean, it, it, almost every, every word, every, what, what others might retreat from and say, you know what? That's no big deal. Guys, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Every, every square foot, every square inch. Ephesians chapter 4 Beginning in verse 25, Paul writes, Therefore, lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of us, or each one of you, with his neighbor. We are members of one another. Lay aside falsehood. Speak truth. Guys, everything that comes out of our mouth needs to be truthful. 
Sometimes we think, well, that's just a little white lie or that's just a, that's just a little thing. That's, that's harmless. That's what the enemy wants us to think. Guys, again, <laughs> everything. No, no area where we can let, let slide. Be angry. He goes, continues, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. That opportunity word is the Greek word tapos, which means a place. We get topographical map. That's where, you know, it means a place. Don't give the enemy, some translations say a foothold. Don't give the enemy one toehold. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. No unwholesome word. No thing should come out of our mouth except that is, is to edify. And watching our speech, Paul obviously thinks that that's a big deal. And how much, how many times do we, do we, or do we see others let that area of our life slip? Ah, it was just whatever, you know, no harm with that really. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed for redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. I just, I keep, I, I come back to this and I want to hit this as hard as I can because guys, this is so huge. Not letting one area of our lives slip. If you want to be a mighty man or woman for God, this area needs to be addressed. Whatever it might be in our lives that God maybe even reveals to us. Maybe it's not in that list. Maybe it's, again, something that the rest of you, you even look around and you see other Christians have no problem doing that or saying that or being a part of that, but God's landed on your heart, not you. Guys, that means not you. That means we fight. It's interesting, in, in 2 Samuel's version of this, it tells us the Eleazar fought so long and so hard, he couldn't open his hand from his sword. It had cramped up so much, he couldn't open his hand and drop the sword. You gotta fight, keep fighting. Don't ever give up. But notice also, and again, this is huge to me, he was with David, he was with his king. Our king fights with and for us in this battle. They took their stand. You take your stand with Jesus against whatever it is, whatever temptation it is, whatever it might be, until there is absolute total victory over that in your life. Then, again, you can be a mighty man or woman for God. And the Lord saved them by a great victory. I just, I love that, that picture there. Verse 15 now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, while the army of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So in this time, David is hiding out in the cave of Adullam. This is prior to him being king. The Philistines are, have this stronghold garrison in Bethlehem. And listen what it says in verse 17. David had a craving 
and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke from the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who went and risked their lives? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Here we see another important component. If we want to be mighty men and women of God, we need to be close enough to the king to hear what he says. Because David's not sitting in the, in the cave and going, man, am I thirsty. I would love a drink from Bethlehem. And by the, by the way, the well that's just inside the gate, how do we know that? Because when they did it, he was like, he was blown away. He, it must have been just something as he was just contemplating, maybe remembering, very thirsty. Who, you know, we don't know the exact situation, but he's like, he had a craving for this water and something about the water from the, the well where he grew up in this area right inside the gate. And he said it, but these men were so close to him that they heard, they heard what he said. They even heard the nuance. They heard the specifics right where he said, and they went and got it for him. Guys, we need to be so close to our king so attentive to even the nuance of his voice that we hear exactly and precisely what it is that he desires of us. Some, you might look at this and say, well, that's a, that's a fine response after they risked their lives for this, that, they, that David didn't even drink it. Understand what it was that David did. Pouring it out before the Lord was, a, was an offering before the Lord. And and their heart, their love for their king, their David, showed in their response. They weren't offended by that whatsoever. But again, their love for their king, hearing what it was that he wanted and responding to that. Verse 20, as for Abishai, the brother of Joab, he was chief of the 30. And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them. And he had a name as well as the 30. Of the three in the second rank... He was the most honored, and because of their because he was the, because their, he was their commander. However, he did not attain to the first three. So we're, we talked about the first three, the top three. This is the second three. He's the top one of the second three. Benaiah, here's another one. I like Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man. I like that Jehoiada, a valiant man, a brave man. Must be proud of his son as we see because Benaiah, mighty indeed, struck down the two sons of Ariel of Moab. Now, we don't know anything about the two sons of Ariel of Moab, but obviously those who were reading would have or he wouldn't have made a point of it. They must have been valiant warriors in themselves. And here Benaiah, he takes them down, strikes them, both of them down. Notice also, he also went down and killed a lion inside a pit on a snowy day. <laughs> I love, I love the detail in that. But he goes down into a pit and kills a lion on a snowy day. Doesn't say what he killed the lion with, but I can tell you it wasn't a 30 6 That's what I'd want. <laughs> Verse 23, he killed an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. That's seven foot six, by the way. That's just about a foot taller than me. 
Now, in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam, but he went down to him with a club, snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. Now, I want Benaiah on my side. <laughs> he goes down. There's this guy, seven foot six, carrying a spear. It says like a weaver's beam, massive in size. Can you imagine the, the, the size of this Egyptian's hands? much less holding on to this thing. He goes down there with a club. The wording seems to indicate a shepherd's club, which is not a massive club, but a club that a shepherd would carry around. Disarms this Egyptian of his spear and kills him with his own spear. Now, that, that's just pretty awesome. I want the video. I'm going to check that video out when we get to heaven. I want to see that. But here we see again, something in this man, and it says it both times, both in 22 when speaking of the lion and in 23 when speaking to the Egyptian. Notice, he went down to them. He went and met with them. I, uh, you've probably heard, you've been around me long enough, you've heard my favorite parable, you know, parables, the stories that have, you know, a meaning that draw. It's not a parable in the Bible. It's the parable of the recruiter, the college football recruiter. See, he met together with his scouts, and he, he met with them on the one, one day, and he said, guys, I'm tired of losing. I want you to go out and get me a certain type of player. You see, there's guys out there that every time they get knocked down, they stay down. And one of the guys spoke up. He goes, we don't want that guy, coach. And he goes, you're right. We don't want him. There's other players out there, every time they get knocked down, they get back up, they get knocked down, they get back up, but eventually when they get knocked down, they stay down. We don't want him either. There's still other players, though, that every time they get knocked down, they get back up. And one of the guys speaks up in the back, he goes, coach, that's the guy we want. And the coach says, no, I want the guy that's knocking everybody down. <laughs> See, Benaiah is that guy. And... He was going to the battle. Now, it's not we go looking for a fight. But guys, we always need to be prepared and ready for battle. And we need to be on the offensive at times in this spiritual battle that we have. Again, always keeping in mind that our enemy is not flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual forces. And again, Paul tells us that to be ready for that, the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put the full armor of God on so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Again, when we look at that whole list of armor, there's nothing for our back because we don't retreat in this battle. We're moving forward. We are taking background. When Jesus went Caesarea Philippi with, with the disciples, he, you know, when, when Peter made that proclamation, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he said, blessed are you, Simon, because 
Man didn't reveal that to you, and you didn't come up with that on your own. God revealed that to you. And on that truth, I will build my church, and the enemies, the gates of hell, will not be able to prevail against it. The gates of hell. We're, our job as Christians is to get behind enemy lines and rescue prisoners of war. <laughs> Being on the offensive, moving forward, taking background that's been lost to the enemy. And I love this about Benaiah. He, he just goes, he goes right into, the ba- into battle, taking it on. These things, verse 24, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did and had a name as well as the three mighty men. Behold, he was honored among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. Again, there was the top three, and then there was some others. David appointed him over his guard. He became kind of the chief of the ones watching over David. Don't blame him. <laughs> I want him being watching over, watching me too. That, but Interesting, it points out a couple of here, times here that there was these three, these top, these top three, and then the rest that were, were underneath. No record anywhere that there was jealousy in that. That they were, that they were like, well, how come I'm not three? What, I mean, what do I got to do? I mean, I killed an Egyptian. He was seven foot six, and I killed a lion. and all. The, what do I got to do to get in the top three? No, it's just do what God's called you to do. Do it with all that you have. Use, the, use the, the, the powers, the gifts that God has given you, and you will be rewarded. The rewards, are, the rewards are amazing. We don't know what they are, but they're not based on your success compared to anybody else. We will all be rewarded based on what God has called you to do. How faithful have you been with what God has given you? I'm really glad I'm not going to be compared to Billy Graham. I don't know about you, but I, you know, he's, you know, if, if, it's, if it's on a commission thing, I mean, he's got, you know, we're going to be rewarded based on what God has given us specifically. He goes on the chronicler here, verse 26, now the mighty men of the armies were Ashiel, and I'm just going to real quickly, for the sake of time, I'm just going to hit the names here. Ashiel, Ahaliah, Shemoth, Halez, Ira, Abiezar, Shibakiah, Eliah, Mahariah, Haled, verse 31, Ethiah, Benaiah, Hariah, Abiel, Asmaveth, Elabiah, verse 34, Jonathan, finally. Jonathan, the son of Shaggy. Ruh, ruh, raggy. I, um, verse 35, Ahiam, Eliphal, Ahijah, Hefer, Hezro, Neriah. We got to get a few more. Verse 41, Uriah the Hittite. One of David's mighty men. If that name doesn't ring a bell, that's Bathsheba's husband, whom David had an affair with. She got pregnant. David calls him home so that hopefully we can cover this whole thing up. He goes, be with his wife. You know, everybody will think it's his child, everything. But he said, I can't do that. While my, my fellow warriors, the, the ones I'm fighting with, are out there risking their life, I can't do that. Send me back to battle. After a couple of David, days, David finally gave up, sent, sent him back carrying his own death warrant. And he was put out on the front lines and killed Uriah the Hittite. 
Zadab, Edina, Hanan, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Joha, Eliel, here we go. Verse 47, Eliel, Obed, Jaziel, the Mezabite. Those are, again, David's mighty men. Now, as we transition into chapter 12, this, it continues to talk about the, the, the men that God brought alongside David. We're going to jump back now into where he's, when they came to him at Ziklag. And again, this, is, this goes back before he's king, back to before the, when he's running from Saul. My, did anybody remember back in the day when you had the, the slides and you had to have a slide projector to you know, go through and throw the slides? You know, now, now you just pop up your iPad and you flip through it. But back then, well... My mom was notorious for the slides in order, you know, we'd be going through and we'd be getting along and I'd be, you know, all of a sudden eight, nine years old in the pictures. And then all of a sudden it'd be back to my baby picture. You know, she's just jumping all over the place. Well, we're doing that a little bit here. We're jumping back. Now, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while, while he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him at war. And again, here we get a, 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 a taste and a look at these men and their makeup, the kind of men that they were that God brought alongside David for the work that God had called David to do. You see, David, a man after God's own heart, yes. David, a man who did mighty things, yes. An, an incredible king, you know, did amazing things, but he didn't do it alone. God brought men and women alongside him, these mighty men. And like, again, there's some great characteristics that we can see in, in this. These men, first of all, that came that God surrounded David with initially, notice they're not fair weather. <laughs> they're not fair weather fans. They came to him while he's still restricted. He's living in caves. He's running from Saul. God brings these men to him there. There were many that would kind of waited and see, oh, let's see how this whole thing between Saul and David play out. These guys, they go out, they go to him, even when things are tough. They were equipped, verse 2, with bows, using both right hand and left hand to sling stones and to shoot arrows from the bow. They were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. Here we see those that even taken out of, out of those that were if, with the enemy, if you would, and now being used for David, for the king. I like this using bows both right and left-handed. I am not ambidextrous at all. I am right-handed fully, completely. I'm, it amazes me how people ambidextrous can do, you know, do things both hands equally well. But flexibility, another great, great component to coming alongside and being active in, in ministry, being flexible. One of Chuck Smith's great comments that he used to say is, blessed are the flexible because they're not easily broken. Being resourceful, using slings, arrows. The chief was Ahizer, then Joash, the sons of Shemai. Again, here we've got a, many names you can read through on your own. Verse 8, from the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained of war who could handle shield and spear and whose faces were like the faces of lions and they were swift as the gazelles on the mountains. Kind of like that. They're, they're willing to go anywhere, even out into the middle of the wilderness, into, the, into wherever it was that was needed. And again, notice, it, I love this. God's not going to call you to go where he's not going to prepare you to be. 
He calls them into the wilderness. And then it says these guys that God called to the wilderness to be a part of David's group there, they were swift as gazelles on the mountains. God's not going to call you to run through the mountains unless he's going to prepare you like a gazelle. And I, I love that because in that, again, to get that picture, because so often we pray, God, this can't be for me. This, this path that I'm on, it's too rough. It's too rugged. Change the path that I'm on. Guys, the best prayer that you can pray is, God, don't change the path. Change my feet. Give me the feet that I need to walk the path that you've placed me on. If it's going to be rocky, if it's going to be jagged, give me hooves. <laughs> like a gazelle that can handle that. that, that it, Amazes me growing up in Colorado to see the bighorn sheep running up the side of a cliff. No fear, no anything, because God created them to do that. Prepared them for it. He's prepared them as he calls them to come alongside David in here. And here we have some more names down in verse 14. It says, these of the sons of Gad were captains of the army who... He who was least was equal to a hundred, and he who was greatest to a thousand. That's awesome. <laughs> and then, verse 15, these are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys, both to the east and to the west. Again, ready to do the impossible. Cross the river when it's overflowing in flood stage, which... If you've ever seen that, Google that if you're interested in it, Jordan at flood stage. It, it's amazing. You've seen, if you've seen rivers swollen after, after heavy rains, torrential rains, you know the w- rivers that'll wash cars away if, they're, if they get caught in it. That's what it's like. It says they crossed that in this stage because nothing's going to stop them. They're, they're, they're on a mission. God has called them to this. And guys, God's going to use us when we're like, God, nothing's going to stop me. If you're going to call me to this, filled with your spirit, following after you, I'm willing to go wherever it is that you lead me. Then some of the sons, verse 16, of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold to David. David went out to meet them and said to them, if you come peacefully to me to help me, my heart shall be united with you. But if to betray me, by, the, by my adversaries, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look on it and decide. Again, I love this about David. David's saying, hey, if you're coming in peace, please come, join us. If you're coming to do harm, he doesn't say, I'll take care of you. He said, God will take care of you. But we see that with David's heart throughout all the time is God will deal with that. God will deal with that. But notice here, it says, then the spirit came upon Amasai, who was the the chief of the 30, and he said, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you, and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. Then David received them and made them captains of the band. Spirit-filled, hugely important as we follow after the Lord. The spirit came upon Amasai, but notice he's loyal. We're yours, David. We're following you. Loyalty. Peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, those are looking to, to, to bring unity and peace. From Manasseh, also some defected to David when he was about to go to battle with the Philistines against Saul, but they did not help him for the lords of the Philistines after consultation sent them away saying at the cost of our own heads, he may defect to his master Saul. That story again, we saw studying this back in, in 2 Samuel, David is running from Saul, and in order to do so, he goes and kind of 
plays to be friends with the enemy, the Philistines. Well, now there's a problem because they're about, the Philistines are about to go into battle with Saul. And David's got, what am I going to do now? And he goes along with it, but God rescues him from that. So he doesn't, isn't put in that situation. God, the, the Philistines are, they go to the captain of the Philistines saying, we can't take David with us because he might turn on us. So they were dismissed. And so that's, that's what's taken place here. As he went to Ziklag, there defected to him from Manasseh, Abna, Jezebab, Jebediah, Michael, and some others. Uh, verse 21, they helped David against the band of the raiders. I'll leave that joke right there. <laughs> for, for they were all mighty men of valor and were captains in the armies. For day by day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. And again, they came alongside David protecting, they're protecting, shepherding. We continue quickly, finish up chapter 12 here. Now these were the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn, to turn the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. These tells us all that came to make David king at Hebron that we started looking at a little bit ago. The sons of Judah who bore the shield and spear were 6,800 equipped for war. The sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. The sons of Levi, 4,600. Now Jehoiada, the leader of the house of Aaron, and with him were 3,700. Also Zadok, young man, mighty, for val mighty of valor in his father's house, 22 captains. Of the sons of Benjamin, Saul's kinsmen, 3,000. For until now, the greatest part of them had kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Like I said, many of them were kind of hedging their bets, kind of seeing how this whole thing played out. But Saul, these come to pledge their allegiance to David after Saul is, is killed. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's households. The half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were designated by name to come to, to make David king. Verse 32, another trait that is beneficial, key to us as we serve the Lord together, of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Guys, we should understand the times that we live in and see the things that are going on around us and be prepared to be used by God in these unique times. Again, talk of this often. Guys, I believe the Lord going to be calling us home any, any time now. <laughs> and we need to be ready and prepared for that, obviously. But also, we need to have a sense of urgency as we are given more opportunity. Every day is, again, an opportunity for us to shine as lights in this dark world. And again, in this season, we don't know how many more Christmases we have to share the real meaning of Christmas to those around us. Because again, I believe time is very short. Understanding the times knowing what it is that we should do. Their chiefs were 200, and all their kinsmen were at their command. Of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out in the army who could draw up in battle formation with all kinds of weapons of war and helped David, notice, with an undivided heart. I'll get to that again in just a second, but an undivided heart. Of Naphtali, there were 1,000 captains, and with them 37,000 with shield and spear, of the Danites who could draw up in battle formation, there were 28,600. Of Asher, there were 40,000 who went out in the army to draw up in battle formation. Just to all of these, imagine this massive amount of people, warriors, 
coming around David to make him king there in Hebron. From the other side of the Jordan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, there were 120,000 with all kinds of weapons of war for battle. All these, being men of war who could draw up in battle formation, came to Hebron, notice, with a perfect heart to make David king over all Israel, and all the rest also of Israel were of one mind to make David king. They were there with David three days, eating and drinking for their kinsmen had prepared what their kinsmen had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought food on donkeys, camels, mules, and on oxen, great quantities of flour cakes, fig cakes, bunches of raisins, wine, oil, oxen, and sheep. There was joy indeed in Israel. And I can't, just a couple of, a couple of things here. First of all, Notice that, it, that we were talking about the lion slayer earlier and you know, the one who killed all of those with one spear, 300 to one, all of that. You know what? Those guys got to eat. And we can't, you know, here we see that even mentioned those that bring the food, those that bring that along. And I say that again because it goes back to that whole piece again. Not all of us are called to be lion slayers. But... We're all called to do something. We are all called to be a part of the plan, all called to be a part of what God is doing. And as we do what God has gifted us and uniquely positioned us to do, whatever it is, if it's provision or if it's out there doing, you know, whatever that is, guys, if we do that with an undivided heart, again, going back to that area where we don't give up an inch, we don't give up anything that's in the, within the boundary of blood as God has redeemed us. We don't, we, there's not an undivided heart, a heart solely focused on the Lord, a perfect heart. Guys, our heart is perfect because it's perfected in him. We have clean hands and pure hearts because he has cleansed them and perfected them. We stand before him clothed in his righteousness. But this, I just, I love this, this, they, we come to do that. We make him king. There will be a day when we will rejoice. <laughs> when we will, when, when all of the earth <laughs> sits under his rule. It's coming soon, guys. It is. He will rule and reign and we'll rule and reign with him. And I just look at this. There was joy indeed in Israel. Guys, there will be joy unspeakable in that time. Man, I can't wait. How about you? Well, let's pray. Lord, Lord, we do thank you for that amazing promise that that day is coming. That day when everything will be made right. When you take your rightful place and rule. Lord, we thank you as those redeemed by your perfect sacrifice on, on our behalf, Lord, that you already do rule and reign in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, because of that, we want to be mighty men and women in, in your army, in your family, Lord. So Lord, I pray that you would do that work in, in each of us, that you would reveal to us if there's any area, even if it's a corner of a barley field in our life, Lord, that we have somehow allowed the enemy to, to control. Lord, help us to identify that, and then we stand with you, and we know that that enemy is defeated. Lord, we give that to you.
that area of our life, we turn that over to you. Lord, our desire is to walk in a manner completely worthy of this amazing gift that you've given to us. And Lord, while the time is here, still left, that you've given to us, each breath that you've given us is an opportunity. Lord, let us be a light in this dark world. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Look forward to seeing you this weekend as we celebrate our King coming, huh? All right.